0: The seminar coincides with the September equinox. Uh, So so that is when the the center of the Sun is uh, directly above the Earth's equator and its rays fall uh, in a right angle on uh, the axis of rotation of the Earth. So at this period, when we are in the September equinox, Uh, night and day have the same duration all over the planet and uh, I think it's wonderful to think that we are now sitting on this uh, revolving globe uh, that is tilted in a particular way uh, with respect to this huge fireball uh, and and although these equinoxes were known since antiquity it has been over the over the centuries that we have been building with our knowledge of science, the, the body of knowledge to explain it in terms of equator axis of rotation, right angle, orbit of uh, the earth and so on and so on. And then we have also developed the technology to look at the earth when it is at equinox. So. So we may look at, this, uh, at the September equinox that we are tra- transitioning through as a symbol of, of the topic that we are discussing in the seminar, of the crisis of change that humanity is going through. And the science and technology that allows us to look at this wonderful photograph has also been an important factor for in the current crisis of change, we are facing in almost every aspect of human life. And I think we tend to look at this crisis from a northern hemisphere point of view, where darkness will take over in terms of uh, climate change, economic uncertainty, social unrest, technological dystopias, and so on and so on. In my own field, field of research in artificial intelligence, uh, there's currently very much hype and a uh, lot of debate about the potential dangers for humankind that this technology uh, can bring about, that we are developing. Uh, but fortunately, there is also a southern hemisphere, which is less populated and uh, for which the September equinox uh, brings longer days and shorter nights. And I hope that uh, the contemplative response that of the crisis of change that we are reflecting on these days will help us to find our way south and uh, so that this symbol of this equinox will mean that light will expand in almost every corner of our life also of our scientific practice. Because I think we ought to look at the quality of our scientific practice and of our technological development to understand where we are going to. When I look at what has drawn me to science and uh, what I think are its values at at its core, I see that um, scientific inquiry is, uh, first of all, vocational. It is really, uh, in the sense of the Latin word, vocation, it's really a calling. And it is permeated by this attitude of awe and wonder. Then, it very much relies on open communication, on sharing ideas, on trust with respect to the others. So that it creates community and, and science is built upon communities. Then, the work of scientific inquiry requires silence, it requires attention, patience a lot of care and a lot of respect as well. So scientific inquiry can—it's not something that you can rush into. Then it is uh, gratuitous and loving. You do it because you love what you do and you do it for the sake of doing it. It is also very transformational. Because scientific inquiry somehow purifies our experience. It frees us from mythical understandings of reality. And then it is also profoundly humble. Because we only know what we know. We can, it, it is very humble in its approach. So when I look at all these things, I see contemplation. But then there's the actual scientific practice, the one that the scientists do every day, the ones that I am faced every day when I go to work. And there, instead of vocation or in wonder, we have fashionable research lines that we follow, very short term objectives. We have to pursue useful results. Instead of trust, sharing, community, we build up opportunistic teams so that we get funding. There's a lot of competitiveness, which makes us very wary of sharing certain ideas. We need to follow certain rigid power hierarchies. Instead of silence, attention and care, we have constant interruption. We are jumping from one idea to another, we have to uh, publish quickly, half-baked ideas, uh, because we have to publish, otherwise we perish. Instead of gratuitous and love, it is determined by big business, leading to power, to the enhancement of egos. Sometimes it is not very transformational because you do not have to challenge orthodox theories of the moment because it may really affect your credibility and your scientific career, so it's very conservative sometimes. And sometimes scientists have a certain arrogance, right, that they, they have the truth, they, they are objective, they, they have the evidence, they look at the evidence, they have proof, they use rational, they are rational. So why is it that the actual scientific practice is so much at odd at the core contemplative values that it has? Well I think today's system of institutionalized, institutionalized science is framed in the value system that came out of modernity. And uh, this has led to our industrial societies and to the socio-economic model that sustains them. I mean, the rise of modern science has been very important for transitioning from agrarian to industrial societies. And this transition has been a, a prevailing instrument and symbol of human liberation because it has been brought more and more creative freedom to individuals and societies in their way they conduct their, their affairs in life, like in the economy, in government, in law, in healthcare, in education, in spirituality, etc., etc. But we now have the following paradox this force, this force of human liberation, is now the same force that is constraining us, constraining the sciences, as it pushes them away from the contemplative values that are at its core. And this is so because the socio-economic model that arose from modernity sees Societies as self-interested individuals or organizations that have well-established preferences that can be quantified and compared. And, these, and the actions of these individuals and organizations are mostly based on rational decision, aiming at, utili- at, ut- at utility and benefit. Well-being is understood in terms of quantity of wealth. And knowledge is ultimately perceived as a commodity, something that we produce. And in this socio-economic model, quality is often confused with excellence. And now, excellence is what we are striving for in academia everywhere. We need to be excellent. And. Uh, but excellence, the, word, the Latin word "excellere," means to surpass, to, to, to be superior and this requires comparison, we need to measure it and therefore the current socio-economic model sees that scientifically, the scientific activity produces outcomes that can be eventually put into use. And this productivity and its usefulness can be measured. And this is what determines excellence. And productivity in this model is then highly, highly encouraged, also in the academic and the scientific world. And consequently, what happens is that scientists need to sell their work at the highest price which means they have to publish as much article as possible in the journals of the highest impact factors which is this bibliometric measure that ranks journals according uh, to their excellence and they need to do so in topics that are fashionable because this way we get higher and higher citations of our work Research institutions, in turn, need to compete for the maximum resources that they are, that are available and also for the best-selling scientists that they can get. So I think our system of science is suffering today its own crisis because it has to adjust to these laws, of this uh, socio-economic model. It it is subject to good marketing uh, strategies and good distribution networks. And, um, And the contemplative values that were lying at the core of the scientific activity, they are not seen as positive in this kind of model. But they are perceived as threats. And I will come to that a little bit later. In my own field of research, my own field of research, artificial intelligence originated in, this, in the context of this economic model. And uh, the main paradigm that uh, is followed in AI research is that of the autonomous rational agent, which is described in the most widely used AI textbooks uh, and uh, in universities around the world today. And um, according to this paradigm what what we aim in artificial intelligence is at designing computational entities or computational systems, such as a self-driving car, that based on the current perception of other entities and the environment, other vehicles, pedestrians, roads, traffic lights, on the memory of previous perceptions that it had, how other vehicles have moved or not, uh, from where did I come. And then on some sort of internal model of the environment and other background knowledge, for example, the attributes of the vehicles and roads, the traffic code, and so on and so on. Based on this information, it autonomously takes a decision to act in a certain way. In this case it would be to brake, or to accelerate, to turn left, to turn right. And what is the principle that we follow to choose a particular action? How does this autonomous rational agent take a particular action? For this in artificial intelligence we adopt a very idealized understanding of what it means to, uh, for an agent to act intelligently. And we narrow this idea to the notion of rationality. To choose the action that produces the best expected outcome according to some previously defined performance measure. And this has been a very successful approach in AI research the advancement of this research because it avoids the vague and ambiguous notions of thinking, intelligence, consciousness and it adopts a notion of rationality which is can be effectively checked for progress. And this approach works for self-driving cars and it works for any other task in which this rationality can be described in terms of utility maximization. As with any other scientific practice, AI research, even though framed in this view and this socio-economic model, can be and has been very transformative and liberating because it is transforming our understanding of cognition to understand which cognitive functions can be and which cannot be characterized in terms of information processing for instance. And AI research although starting off with this very narrow particular understanding of rationality actually helps us to revise what we understand under rationality. And even to question the claim if rationality is what distinguishes us as human beings. Because now we know that machines can be much better at being rational, in this narrow sense, Mm -hmm. that we have adopted in artificial intelligence. And so, and I think here lies the danger that um, that AI based technology can produce. It is not that we are going to have some super intelligent machines that will take over the world. I think that is not the danger. I think the danger more is that we forget the metaphorical nature of our our conceptualization of mind, of intelligence, of rationality, and we take it too literally. And, and then we don't see the metaphors anymore that are endowing our scientific models and we provide these models with some ontological reality. And, and when this happens, our models, our scientific models, cease to be only descriptive or predictive and they threaten to become prescriptive, the way to determine how things have to be. And and because then if, if intelligence is taking literally as computation, and to reason is to just compute, then it is only a very small step that we take any process that requires reason, medical diagnosis, sentencing and trials, personal selection, and so on and so on. We take these and we standardize them in terms of algorithmic step-by-step procedures so that we can suitably measure and compare its outcome to perform to maximize utility and to strive for excellence. And when we do that, when we unconsciously rationalize our human activities, in terms of this algorithmic computation, because we don't see the metaphor anymore and we take it literally, then we humans unnoticeably adjust our decisions and actions to these rationalized processes without questioning the aptness of the metaphor anymore. And by rationalizing our processes due to these advancements of science and technology and in computing technology in particular, we are removing the creative freedom that we originally granted to the decisions taken by traders, policy makers, judges, physicians, teachers, and we straight them in these algorithmic procedures. And then we are lost because the computers will be make much better decisions following these kind of of, uh, processes. So I think the contributions of science and technology should ...ultimately evaluated, uh, not in terms of utility only, not in terms of economic growth, not in terms of maximization of some performance measure. They should be evaluated in relation to how they help and enlarge and not impede or supplant our creative freedom. And not only for people, but for all creation. And I think that is the critical situation of uh, humankind is facing now with the kind of science of technology it is developing and the way it structures the societies around these technologies and it may be a matter of life and death. As I said, in the context of the current system of of institutionalized science, an attitude in our scientific activity that is is more accord to these above mentioned uh, uh, contemplative values that I mentioned before, is perceived actually as a threat. Because if we follow such contemplative values, we would decrease in productivity, which doesn't work with the system. They lead to so-called useless knowledge. We would do science around a notion of quality that is not measurable, where outcomes cannot be compared easily. We would be far too slow in our activity, scientific activity. And this, we wouldn't cut, uh, catch up with society. So, so we need to be fast and uh, produce quick our results. Since following contemplative values m- makes you somehow ego-decentered, uh, it undermines competitiveness, which is a positive value for this for the current model. And it makes scientists following this kind of approach feel, uh, they appear ingenuous, naive, they appear to be irrational, even harmful what they do and the system has to protect from these kind of scientists. And uh, because they do unorthodox things and unconventional research and they have very eccentric ideas So, so here is here we are, we are scientists, we have a strong vocation for science. At our core of our being, we have this sense of what it means to do science with quality. These contemplative values have motivated to embark us into a life of scientific research. We love the topic we work on. And while we carry these contemplative values within u- within us we are placed in a system of science which is industri- industrially shaped that seeks to produce useful results we have to compete with other scientists for resources for funding for getting papers published to advance in our careers and I th- and this generates attention this generates a tension in the scientist. And many scientists, I think, have voiced this tension in some way or another. So, how are we to resolve this tension? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Maybe the contemplative core of scientific inquiry hints to the fact that science is is a spiritual practice per se. Because to inquire is to be open to the unknown, is to let curiosity and wonder drive this inquiry, is to allow oneself to be transformed by it. So, our human journey of life, our spiritual journey, is basically the journey of inquiry. To be on the way of seeking. And to keep the emphasis on the seeking, not on what is sought. So, so on the quality of our inquiry, and not on the quantity of knowledge that we generate. So it is the way that is the goal. And if we stay with the current framework, That we have inherited from our from the industrial societies which is centered on material production and utility governed by a producer consumer economy uh, which has a which has well being conceptualized as wealth and which is measured in in terms of monetary value. If we stay with conceptualizations of artificial intelligence in terms of autonomous, rational agents that maximize expected utility. Then, I think, if we stay in this framework, the science and technology we produce may continue to provide benefit only for a minority of the human population, it will strengthen current power distributions, and it will produce a consumer economy which is not leading to liberation, but is leading to slavery. I think nourishing freedom is a sign of spiritual growth and freedom itself is a spiritual dimension. Maybe freedom is a secular symbol of the spirit. So how can we make freedom shine through the research and endeavor that we do in science and technology? so as to make this research a true witness of humanity's journey of inquiry towards fullness of life. Again, I don't know. (laughs) But let me make a very short foray into (coughs) contemporary cognitive science so as to try to give an answer to this question. So uh, please bear with me. We live in a world of opposites, we structure our physical space in opposites, up, down, left, right, inside, outside, big, small, near, far, here, there. We structure our, we structure our beliefs in opposites, true, false, appearance, reality, what is and what not is not. We structure our values in opposites, good, bad, pleasure, pain, freedom, bondage. Where do all these opposites come from? Well, contemporary cognitive science claims that it is our embodied experience with the world that creates in our cognitive unconscious certain prelinguistic structures with which we construct our conceptual system. So when children do heuristic play, when they put things into other things, they create a schematic image of containment. And this image, this schematic image, is also the basis of abstract concepts such as categories. Because as we experience things that share common properties in the same bounded region, trees in a forest, grapes on, on, on vines, herds of animals, flocks of birds, we structure the abstract concept of category using this containment schema that we have learned from our embodiment. So we put things in the category of grapes that we identify to be particular grapes. And other things that are not grapes lie outside the category of grapes. And so if we classify things as being inside and outside the categories we create, horses, trees, birds, and so on. And the further we grow in our cognitive abilities, we start to create more and more abstract categories. But they are all ultimately structured by our containment schema that we have acquired as little infants, which establish always a boundary with an interior and an exterior. And so arises the world of opposites. Big and small, true and false, good and bad, pleasure and pain, and so on. So this binary logic of containment and the notion of classification into categories that lies at that that on, uh, in, in the notion of classification into categories that is structured with this containment lies at the heart of the notion of information and subsequently of the sort of knowledge that we gain by scientific inquiry. Because to inform literally means to put into form, where the latin word forma means a contour, a boundary. So and the word science itself derives from the latin scindere, which is to cut to divide. So so with this containment and this containment schema is also what is called a, a gestalt structure which means that these three things interior boundary and exterior come together you cannot separate them. So, so there's no interior if it isn't conceptualized with respect to an exterior and a boundary that divides interior and exterior and there is the same holds for the exterior and the same holds for the boundary and this gest- this gestalt structure transfers to these opposites that we have conceptualized in terms of containment so there is no pleasure if there's no pain and there's no pain without pleasure and there's no goodness without badness, and no badness without goodness. And recall that this containment st- schema structure is something that is prelinguistic, and in the cognitive unconscious. We are not conscious about this structure. And then when, when speech kicks in, then something very wonderful happens, because it gives us the, the great would give us a great power, which is to name our categories, to put a label on it. And this allows us to, to evoke with the simple utterance of a word, such as pain, the entire universe of experiences that we have classified as painful. But at the same time, it alienates us with each individual, particular, unique moment of experience of pain prior to this categorization. Now this capacity of naming gives us an illusion of separation of these things, because we can talk and reason with a particular word that names a particular category, Constructing arguments that only make the use of the word pleasure without ever explicitly mentioning the word pain. And this in turn lets us think that we can get rid of one of these halves. So the, the manipulability that speech provides us has been so successful for the flourishing of our species and has granted us so much power that now we take the word, the world, as we came to know through opposites and through speech, as real. And this word that arises from information and the subsequent manipulability that, that it provides. But this is only half of it because the power we have gained by categorizing and naming comes itself with the loss of immediacy. immediacy. So the knowledge that we have gained by this information comes at the loss of an uninformed immediate experience. Paradoxically though, by virtue of the same capacity that we have to, to categorize and to name that alienates us from this immediate experience, we also gain the awareness that boundaries and interiors and exteriors and the opposites that they create are not intrinsically out there in the world, they are actually in the eye of the beholder, and so is also information. So our capacity of speech is somehow a two-sided sword. On one hand, it cuts our world in opposites and makes us think the world as we know it, full of dualities. But on the other hand, the distance we create with this immediate experience makes us aware that that what we know is always relative to our bodily experience shaped by our cognitive unconscious, so as to make us realize that reality has also an unknowable, an undivided, an absolute, a non-dual dimension, and I would say that none of these worlds, the relative one, or the absolute is more real than the other. It's one and the same world, the same reality, not one but not two either. It is not that there are some aspects of the world that we can know and others that are beyond our knowledge and we don't know. No, every, every single aspect of the world has is at the same time, can be known and unknown. And that's why I think that scientific inquiry is only half of it as well. Because scientific inquiry is based on boundaries and on categorization. It creates this informational dualistic knowledge. It is based on information. It yields knowledge that we can eventually be put into use through technology. It is also a driving force f- leading us to progress but progress itself also requires a categorization because it is basically moving away from what we categorize as bad to move towards what we categorize as good. So we, pr- we progress by pursuing One half of this pair, one half of these opposites, we pursue health, pleasure, beauty, wealth, by attempting to eradicate the opposite half, sickness, pain, ugliness, poverty, driven by this system of opposites that constitute our our value system. And I think it is intrinsic, this intrinsically dualistic nature of scientific inquiry that which renders it ill-suited for providing an adequate orientation and motivation to the inquiry it is conducting. So, So the system of opposites that constitute our value system driving our scientific research can only be themselves inquired into by looking through the illusion of these opposites and by transcending them. And this, I think, is what ultimately means to be liberated. So freedom is the unmediated, direct apprehension of this absolute dimension of reality, the reality that is uninformational, undivided, unknowing, non-dual, beyond opposites. Now, scientific inquiry will obviously continue yielding advancements in medicine, agriculture, technology, and they are going to be advancements in the sense that they are motivated and driven by the opposites that constitute our value system, that make them advancements from one half to the other. Human life needs opposites to to find orientation, we need them. But, and we need to foster scientific inquiry to advance in this our life orientation. It's absolutely necessary. But scientific inquiry, I think, has to go hand in hand with this sort of inquiry that transcends the illusion of the boundaries and the opposites they create. So freeing us from from the attachment to these opposites. So not basing our happiness or our fullness of life on these boundaries. So let's call this kind of inquiry non-dual inquiry or contemplative inquiry. How does such contemplative inquiry look like? Well, we don't need to invent this sort of inquiry from scratch. We can walk in the footsteps of those that preceded us in this journey of inquiry. In the same manner we do with our scientific inquiry. So this is a picture of a monument called the Well of Light. It marks the place where St. Ignatius had the vision that led to his spiritual exercises. And it contains the name of all those contemplative and mystics of all traditions that have preceded us in the work of contemplative inquiry. So meditation is probably the most obvious example of contemplative inquiry. The silencing of our thoughts, images, and desires by the faithful repetition of a mantra or the mindful attention to the breath. This makes the contemplative non-dual of, non-dual dimension of reality shine through all our activities. My personal experience with my daily practice of meditation is that it has put me again in touch with this contemplative core of scientific inquiry. So I think scientists and engineers would benefit greatly in the daily task of conducting scientific research and technological development if they integrate these daily tasks that they do with the daily practice of meditation. I think it's ironic that this sort of inquiry, contemplative inquiry, which some orthodox scientists consider brainless, is exactly what is most free and creative, and which is the essential feature of our humanity, more than our rationality. And I think not only scientists and engineers would benefit, humanity would be enriched by the outcomes of a contemplatively driven science. So, in addition to meditation, let me give some examples of what could be a contemplatively different science. Scientists could do some contemplative reading and writing of the things that they do and work on, much in the sense of Alexio Divina. I think nowadays we are so pushed into writing quickly publishing fast that uh, and to reading many articles very rapidly that we have lost the to savor a scientific text slowly and to let it sink in (laughs) journaling every day writing down the thoughts that one had at the beginning at the end of the Of the task of a scientist would be also a contemplative practice that we can bring into a more contemplatively driven science. The value of taciturnitas to say only that that is necessary to say. Now we are publishing so much and so useless or use I would not say (laughs) the word useless but so many Uh, repetitive or half-baked ideas instead of really publishing what is necessary to publish. Deep listening and and beholding. To listen really to each other respectfully. Uh, My experience with scientific conferences nowadays is that there's not much listening happening in these conferences. So so there's the speaker explaining his research, and the audience, the people are working on their laptops, reading mail, preparing the slides for the talk they have to do uh, in a few minutes. There's, there's very less, less and less uh, attentive, respectful listening happening. And also, I think it would be also good practice in our research labs to, to explain each other our research in a deep way to ask other people to re-explain it, and to see if they have understood it. Um, the pressures of the system makes us work very isolated and with, uh, not with these discussions that are necessary. We should also learn to look at the big picture, to, to let us think in the big picture. Sometimes we are so much focused on the details that we forgot to look at the, at the big picture of the problem and to let, to dissolve this, this boundary of the subject and the object and to let the immediate experience that we have to enrich our scientific inquiry. So, somehow complementing the objective detachment that is required in scientific research, which is necessary in the more analytical task, to complement it with this, this dissolvement of the subject-object boundary. Then also welcoming the stranger to cultivate intellectual hospitality. So, Saint Benedict, in his rule, says that all guests who arrive be received like Christ. So, scientists should be welcoming new ideas, even if they initially might seem very odd and strange. Let's first welcome it. Benedict further says in the reception of the poor and the pilgrims the greatest care and solicitude should be shown for as far as the rich are concerned the very fear which they inspire wins respect for them. So it's easy to accept and praise the work of some famous scientist or prestigious university or research team but I think it's to the less known scientist which we need to put more attention and care when looking at their work. So I'm, I'm now a little bit little bit above the middle of my scientific career. And I would like to live my rest of my life as a scientist by cultivating such contemplative-driven science, which I have not done, and I would like to do it in the future. So. And here I'm talking to a convinced audience, but I would like to create a community of fellow scientists that also feel this calling and that want to follow this kind of path and to invite more and more colleagues to join in. I know that there are already many initiatives arising at several places in our world and and I'd like to conclude my, my talk mentioning some of these, um, of these initiatives in order to get this um, southern hemisphere perspective uh, of our crisis, seeing how days are getting longer and than our nights. So for instance, in, in, in the US, There is the Association for Contemplative Mind in Higher Education, which is an association, a multidisciplinary academic association, which has a membership of educators, administrators, staff, students, researchers and other professionals that, that are committed to the transformation of higher education through the recovery and development of the contemplative dimension of teaching of learning and of knowing. Then in Germany there, there has been an initiative called the Slow Science Academy. It wanted to gather groups of researchers alongside selected people from science, afi- science related areas. And they wanted to offer them space and time and resources to do their main job, to discuss, to wonder to think here in belgium there is uh, a group of researchers and uh, and teachers at the, univer- the universite libre de bruxelles who have made uh, they are advocating for the excellence for an excellence they have they have a, a, a letter for an excellence and they say how you have to be an unexcellent researcher. <laughs> <laughs> then in in my own country in Catalonia there's this initiative called País Conscien conscious country which grew out of this plan a national plan for values of the gov- of the Catalan government and in the National Plan for Government, 500 experts of all areas, including science, there was also a science group, discussed what, would, what have to be the values uh, to make an important paradigm shift as the one that, that I've been explaining a little bit here. And uh, now this has evolved to, this has moved out from the government, and now it's uh, the, the, the people that were responsible for that. For, for coordinating the different kind of groups of all areas uh, finance, economy, uh, environment, uh, health, science, um, uh, uh, business, uh, all areas. This, this core group is now um, pushing the ideas forward to let them know to find groups to create networks and I'm, I'm involved in this in the scientific aspect of this of this initiative so there's this one as well and then there's obvio, obviously meditatio <laughs> I mean the, the, the community's outreach which I think is a fabulous task that is doing in this direction. <coughs> so the equinox we are about to transition through think, I think is also a sign of this two path of human inquiry, of the scientific and the contemplative inquiry, of knowing and unknowing. Again, a pair of opposites that we need to transcend as well. As light and darkness is transcended when the northern and southern hemisphere are dissolved in the wholeness of our planet Earth. So thank you.